Hello. In this episode of the State of Mind podcast, I interview David and Deborah Cooper from Ellie's Place. They share an incredibly inspiring and courageous story of how they worked through the death of one of their children to suicide. And they talk a lot about what they're doing today and the incredible work they're doing with Ellie's Place. And I am continually inspired by amazing people like this. And these are the type of interviews and the type of conversations that I'm trying to bring forward through the podcast. So I hope you enjoy. There are some incredibly powerful and moving moments of this episode. I hope you enjoy it. And please, as always, excuse me, let me know and comment and share and all those kind of things, because really this is about improving this conversation and doing everything um, I can to help you, to help myself and to help the world around us. Okay, peace. My name is Mike, and this is the State of Mind podcast on Radio Regent Park. And today we have two very special guests, David and Deborah Cooper. And they're going to share with us their experience um, with mental health and etc. And I'm going to let them explain because that's always better. Um, so welcome, Deborah and David. So you please tell people, uh, people why you're here and, and what's going on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for asking mm-hmm. us. Um, sharing our story is so much more than just um, telling people what has happened in our lives and uh, where we're where we've come from and where we're going to. Because we hope it's not just for um, the memory in memory of our son. We'll tell you about Ellie, um, but also for so many families who are. Uh, dealing with mental health issues and mental illness, uh, it's quite the battle, quite the struggle, um, quite the journey. Mm -hmm. So every time we share our story, we hope that others will learn and um, be able to benefit from what we have to say. So in a nutshell, um, I'll try to make this very brief. (laughs) Take your time, take your time. Our son, Ellie, uh, Ellie Nathan Cooper was his name, took his life by suicide almost nine years ago. It was July 2010. And he had a 15-year struggle, we realized, um, with mental illness. Uh, I'll begin by saying he was an amazing guy. He was um, just bright and witty and had lots of friends and was sort of the center of the party and uh, really loved life. He loved music. He loved working with kids. He was bilingual, he read five newspapers a day, he was so aware of the world. He was also really, really sensitive. He was, uh, world events deeply disturbed him and he was, it was difficult. And uh, late in high school, I guess 12th grade probably, um, we were uh, made aware by a very kind guidance counselor who had made a phone call she probably wasn't supposed to make because he was over 18. But she said, I'm a mom, and if I were you, I'd want to know. So she was the one who let us know Ellie wasn't attending school, and she suspected he was in trouble. Um, How long had that been going on for? I think probably almost a year. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we have no way of really knowing. His brother Noah uh, was aware that uh, right. he was certainly struggling. So we, listen, we were able to access care. He went into a, um adolescent clinic at a hospital. He was seen regularly. He was on meds. 
Um, we were the fortunate few who knew how to uh, get care. I used to be a community health nurse in the city, so I always thought, well, if I couldn't um, find care, you know, if I had trouble navigating All the right. system, I can only imagine how really, really stressful and difficult it is for others. Um, and we were lucky. We were mm -hmm. lucky. Um, Ellie attended um, two six-week programs, um, but unfortunately th there was no transitional opportunities uh, after the programs ended. Um, so um, it, it seemed like he was back to square one each time. Um, that was really later in his illness. Initially it was um, mm -hmm. just uh, he was treated for depression, anxiety, he was on meds, and things went okay for a while. He was able to catch up in school with summer school. He did some traveling. He actually was able to get a job. And then late 20s is when um, uh, things fell apart. He actually was holding down a job that they were very um, um, agreeable to help him you know, with morning struggles, mm -hmm. etc., uh, um, and deal with some of his issues. And he had a girlfriend, and, and things were great. And things were so great that he decided to stop taking his lithium. And uh, I don't think that's an uncommon story. No. Um, people feel so good, they decide to stop their medications. He was also using marijuana at the time because that helped him feel better and gave mm -hmm. him a lift, but um, it certainly wasn't the medication he needed uh, to deal with. By then, he was already diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, so, things just went rapidly in a spiral, and uh, he then experienced his first manic episode, uh, which was terrifying, terrifying. Um, and, you know, again, I w we were able to access help. He went to emergency, he had care. He was in hospitals for almost a year. But as David mentioned, uh, the programs he eventually was admitted to, um, both of the programs um, did not have a transition, a transitional aspect that they could help him deal with life right. after the hospital. Um, he also was never really able to find a medication that worked as well as lithium had previously, and he somehow. It didn't work for him after when he tried to get back on. So, right. so basically, um, almost a year after his first suicide attempt, he uh, did take his own life on July the second, two thousand and ten, uh, and that changed our lives forever mm -hmm. and sent us on a new journey. And we talk. I know it's a it's a story of such profound loss and. Why do people want to listen, you know? But um, we, at this point, really see it as a story of recovery and of hope, and this is what we want to transmit mm -hmm. because uh, through all the loss and the grief, and that's a whole journey on of its own, um, we have found a way to, in a way, memorialize L.A. by trying to do something to uh, make things better for others. Uh, we're in the midst of opening Canada's first residential treatment center for 19 to 35 year olds with serious mental illness. The average stay on our farm, that'll be an organic farm, will be six to nine months and um, further um, into a year if needed. And the transitional period will be one to two years. All the while on this organic farm, hmm. they'll be learning life and work skills. And in the transition period, they'll have the opportunity to come back to the farm if, if need be.
and they'll be learning the work skills uh, at the transitional phase. Um, we're hoping to open up sometime early in 2021. Um, we have hmm. a partner with land and services, and we hope to announce our partnership um, sometime in the next three months. And um, we're very excited about that. That's been our journey, and that's one yeah. way to, um, to give hope to others where uh, no hope was uh, seen, deemed possible before. And also to, to save lives as well. Um, our the farm will um, uh, house uh, 40 residents. Wow. And um, hmm. um, there'll be two um, beds uh, for... Um, respite care. Respite People care. to come back. And, um, yeah, there'll be um, the... the, the uh, the um, we'll have the um, regular modalities. Right. Um, in addition to that, we'll have music and art therapy, and as I mentioned, we'll have an organic farm uh, opportunity to learn all about nutrition. And um, there'll be businesses on yeah. the uh, farm. Right. You know, a lot of skills. And the most important thing is is living within community. It's a therapeutic support right. community. And you're probably wondering how do we get from losing a child? To yeah. A farm? Well, and I I do it's. Because I remember when we met a couple of years ago for the first time, um, I guess you've come a long way since yeah. that. That was at least two years ago. And I remember talking, which I think is super cool, is the incorporating the business side of it or the like the life. This is what life can be like. And this is a great opportunity to immerse yourself in a community that's, I don't know, integrated maybe more into regular everyday mm -hmm. things, I guess. Yeah. That's right. And we're modeling after, uh, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're, we, we've searched and we found 33 other farms around the world wow. that are similar to, El it'd be called Ellie's Place, yeah. Residential Treatment and Transition Center. And um, out of those 33 farms, we visited three and we're modeling after one of them. It's called Gould Farm in Monterey, Massachusetts. It's um, established 106 years ago, wow. and their um, outcome studies are, are exemplary, and they're, wow. they're, they're published, and, um, um, you know, we're very wow. thrilled that they're, um, they're behind the scenes helping us uh, move forward. The, um, so in our journey, after yeah. Ellie died, we discovered these uh, residential treatment centers um, with a farming model, an outdoor model, and interesting, because when Ellie was... Um, ill. He was in hospital and he heard about woofing, uh, which is worldwide opportunities on organic farms. I wow. think. Um, <laughs> and although it wasn't appropriate for him because there was no therapy involved, he right. did try it. He said he verbalized to us all the advantages of living out in nature. You know, he'd be well fed and he'd be active in his own care and he'd live in community and he'd have exercise and just being in nature, mm -hmm, the, the mm -hmm. benefit of that we know is so important. Yeah. Um, so we went on, we just went on this quest and we found these treatment centers that actually not only offer all the advantages of being outdoors and that kind of lifestyle, but offer therapy as well. So there'll be um, psychiatric involvement. There will be CBT and DBT, mm -hmm. perhaps. And um, 
you know, the modalities um, that are so necessary, plus the arts, as David mentioned, and yeah. uh, yoga and physical exercise. And, and mindfulness and, yeah. and music therapy, and we're excited about it. Yeah, that's and, amazing. And so are our partners that have um, helped us um, to get to this, uh, to this stage. So we were a little surprised that there was nothing like this in Canada. There are something like 33 of them in the U.S. They're all over the world, in U.K., Australia. It's based on something called a recovery model mm -hmm. um, where, and this is the key. I think Ellie always thought he was going to be able to get over this illness. He was going to be able to be well and mm -hmm. um, it would go away. So what we know is, you know, bipolar disorder and other mood disorders don't go away. Um, the recovery model is about learning to live with an illness learning to have the highest quality of life you can have and how to manage it, Yeah. Um, how to compensate, how to um, work with the symptoms, how to recognize when you need right. help. And uh, uh, so this is what we're aiming to um, Yeah, it's lovely. Do. And I think part of uh, the recovery model or this newer way of helping is about the other skills that go on at a, at a place like Ali's place, the farming and the exercise in the community and the, the I guess the discovery of ingra uh, what would you call it? Integrating that into life skills. So you're on a farm, you're growing food, you're eating food, you're cooking food, you're, you're perhaps selling food. And is there a location? Uh, do you have a location yet? Um, we know, well, we're hoping that it'll be within an hour and a half of the city. Yeah. And it's in that um, Oak Ridge's Moraine areas. Cool. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I saw uh, pictures of the of the plan or the the, the vision. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. It looks beautiful. We're looking at one particular place that's about forty five minutes north of Toronto, and yeah. um, um, which um, is is an ideal location for you know staff um, right. wanting to live right, in right. GTA. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, exciting. Wow. Listen, for some who <sighs> come to the farm, yeah, just getting up in the morning to show up. For breakfast or the first meeting, could yeah, be the big challenge. Absolutely, day, yeah, right? yeah. So we have to start from where um, that person is, right. and then teach them. How and so, would they get referred there? So, would they be referred from hospital potentially, or how do you know? I guess it's maybe you don't know that yet, well, or from, from the hospitals from yeah. their mental health professional, right? Um, and they can be self-referred too. Families, yeah. we're going to okay. be working closely yeah. with families. Lovely. So yeah. Oh, yeah, there's... Uh, yes. We've been told by many <laughs> health professionals in the city, don't worry, there's a lot of people who we will be sending to you. <laughs> but, uh, it's unfortunate. I don't doubt that. You know, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And, and wow. we've chosen uh, from 19 to 35 mm. because um, there's um, there's uh, a lot of programs for um, y the younger age. Yeah. Um, but then there's very little once they uh, they transition to, uh, to adult right. 19. And some of those programs are really very addictions focused. Yeah. Um, so our primary focus is mental illness. Yeah. With, of course, is going sure. to be co-occurring. Yeah. Um, addictions, if you know, it's very possible. Yeah. And comorbidities, and yeah. we will have to deal with it because we're going to deal with what real life is. Yeah. You know, Mike. Interesting. Um, some of the programs Ellie applied to, it was so frustrating. Uh, um, because one of them, he was seriously ill. He was not coping. He was in hospital. We were looking for a program in the community. And they wouldn't accept him because he had used marijuana in the past. Well, I'm sure most young adults right. are struggling with bipolar Absolutely. Disorder, many. 
So, um, so it wasn't available. And another program would not accept him because he had attempted suicide previously. Wow. So, um, I know, you know, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, it I know is. there's reasons for sure. restricting parameters and this important in terms of research, but it was just so hard to find uh, the help we needed, even to find a psychiatrist um, who would take a very ill person in the community. Uh, that was a bit of a challenge. That was a big challenge. Um, the, the, the psychiatrists that we spoke to uh, were certainly willing to manage uh, meds, but the talk therapy was another issue. Um, hmm. That was um, um, yeah, difficult to yeah. access. Yeah, and what did was there access? I just from my brother's stays in and out. The only psychiatrist he ever saw, for the most part, until recently, it was in the inpatient unit in the hospital. So did did was. Ali's access to psychiatry outside of that as well? Or in the no? earlier years, yes. Yeah. He, had, he was able to um, be in someone's practice right, who okay. saw him in the community. Right. And I know they are available. It just takes but it's, a whole lot of Yeah, no kidding. Until yeah. they age out. <coughs> right. And they do age right, out right, of right. clinics. Um, and hmm. then you're right. Once he was in hospital, we had difficulty finding a community we really psychiatrist. Did. We really did. But yeah. fortunately, um, the psychiatrist who had seen him in hospital continued to manage his medications. Right. But we were always trying to find something. Yeah. And the other challenge I know is is the psychotherapy that comes along with that, right? I mean, that's because right. the system is still at a place where it's mostly medication management that's and right. not that's providing right. psychotherapy. Right. And, and it was the psychiatrist who told us, look, the most important work he has to do is psychotherapy. Wow, it's yeah. talking. It's yeah, yes, 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 yes. I can't do it. You know, it's that's, so important. Yeah, and, and there's an, another huge factor, too, in addition to any of the diagnoses that he had. Um, was the shame and humiliation that he deal, had to deal with. And, and um, you know, we believe that uh, that, that was th probably the biggest factor in his life, uh, things that he couldn't deal with. And, and we believe that Ellie did not want to die. Yeah. He just couldn't live with his pain. And there, therein lies the difference. Yeah. Um, during um, the time that um, uh, probably about three months after Ellie died from suicide, I started journaling. And that journaling uh, moved into um, an idea for a book, a guide for parents who have lost a child to suicide. But um, just as important is uh, the guide is uh, probably um, valuable for parents that have lost a child for any reason. Uh, our guide, and Deborah and I uh, written it together, it's called Bridge Over the River Why, because that's the predominant question that parents mm -hmm. ask until they can um, move towards what now. Right. And um, this place owns Bridge Over the River Why, hmm. and 100% of the proceeds goes towards um, uh, this, this right. Canada's first residential treatment center. Amazing. Um, I guess that's, maybe I can start asking you about some parts in the book. Sure. Yeah. That uh, was the bridge. That, wa that was a beautiful bridge. I mean, wow, it couldn't have been better. Um, uh, so the first, um, I know you mentioned journaling in the book as well. Uh, the first part of that, well, 
the story of the eagle oh, is the hawk, is right. co- the hawk. Sorry, thank you. Okay. Um, is quite moving, and also, and when you said you returned, I think a year later. Later this, the day. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Do you want to just tell well, us about the, tell you know, talk about that a little bit, maybe? At Ellie's funeral, there was um, um, there was a hawk sitting on the earth beside his grave, and. Um, it didn't move until um, the hearse pulled up and uh, the casket was being um, uh, taken by the pallbearers and that's when it flew away. And um, our native population believe that the hawk is a symbol to uh, protect the soul. So, um, a year to the day yeah. we were on the bridge where Ellie took his life and um, at exactly the moment that he um, he decided to 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 take his life, at that very very moment, a year later to the to the minute, um, there was a hawk flying right over our heads, and so um, that's a po- that was a poignant moment. Yeah. And, um, one that um, you know wherever whenever we see a hawk, yeah. Whenever <laughs> we travel, we're always looking for that that's that sign. That Ellie's still with us. Yeah. And the book, um, uh, Ellie's Place Residential Treatment Center, uh, are a way to keep uh, Ellie's memory alive. And that's what parents want. They um, they want to keep their, their son or daughter's memory alive. Yeah. You know, Mike, it's a lot. I, I see so many parallels in what we're doing to um, Starts With Me, mm-hmm. State of Mind, because you're taking a personal life experience and journey Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're reaching out and sharing it with others is making such a difference so this is a way that we're also trying um, yeah it's and i you talk a lot about that in the book too about the importance of talking and um i want to i let me read some of these because i i think they're just it was the first one uh if love could save you that's what I guess my note to it was, we believe that what you mentioned, we believe that our son did not want to die. He just could not go on living. Choosing to end his unbearable pain was his last measure of control. If love could have saved him, our son would be alive today. And I think that is such a, must be such an, you know, I I can't fully grasp what that, that, disconnect or whatnot but i assume parents that must be just such an incredible torment in a sense when you think that you could have saved them which you also write about in the book Mm -hmm. when when a parent goes through the why um and they get to what now then they can they you have to go through it you can't go around it that's avoiding you you don't get over it you get over the flu needing to go through it and doing and feeling and doing and feeling over and over right. and over until um, you start to identify all the feelings that you're having and identify them and feel them. And it's very painful, but it's very necessary. Yeah. It takes more than journaling. It's It's a tough grief. David uses the expression, it's a complex grief. There's a lot. Um, we, um, you know, not a day goes by we don't think of Ellie. Grief for Ellie um, is part of our new normal. This is now part of our lives. Right. We're parents. Um, 
And we didn't, uh, you know, we're not coping just from journaling and talking. Um, David and I have both uh, sought the help of therapists. I think it's really important if people ask us, yeah. you know, what do we advise? Uh, that would be top of my list. It's not something one can do alone. Um, um, yep. Yeah, I want to, to that point, uh, I'm going to read another sure. part of the book. We found that families who have not had help to understand and make sense of the death are far more likely to get stuck in repetitive talking about the death without resolution. Going over the events in detail allows family members to hear each other's perspectives, to appreciate that everyone is in pain, and to realize that they may all be at different stages within their grief, with each attributing a different meaning to what has happened. Um, yeah, so maybe you can talk about that a little bit. We learned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're living through it. And, uh, yeah, we each have our own ways of grieving. Yeah. Right? One might retreat. One might get really busy. Um, I was really, I felt fortunate that I had work to go to. So after right. um, a week later, I was back at work. And that helped me stay distracted and cope. And I had other things I had to do. Um, while going for therapy and while coming home in the evening and falling apart when I had to fall apart yeah. and cry when I had to cry. And it's about accepting the other's um, right to feel or to grieve in their own way. Yeah, that was it, such a nice yeah. part of the book where he really got into yes. that. Yeah, and, and, you know, we understood that we both had uh, a break but by example, I had a broken left leg. She had a broken right leg. Right. We both had a break, but we grieve differently. Parents can grieve at the same time, mm -hmm. but very, very differently, as do their the siblings, surviving siblings right. as well. And uh, we, the three of us, um, Noah survived his brother, and three of us went for family therapy for about three years, four yeah. years. And that helped, in addition to the three of us having our individual therapy as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, yeah it's, it's essential. Yeah. And uh, the other thing, we went to, um, um, we sought the help of uh, the distress centers of Toronto. We went for grief counseling with volunteers there. Made all the difference in the world, truly. And then we opted to participate in their group support right. programs, too. Um, you can feel pretty alone when you're out there, and then when you're also dealing with the suicide of a child. It's not something you want to talk to a lot with a, uh, with a lot of friends. Yeah. Because um, they don't have the language of loss. Yeah. I can, I, uh, so that was, that was an amazing resource for us. Can we... Yeah, there was... I guess I'm going to jump around here, but the part in the book about that too is quite beautiful. There's so many sincere messages and important ones I would, I thought in the book and just whoever <laughs> should read it, whoever's out there. Um, but this one here, um, we learned very early that if we wanted to keep our friends and family, we needed to teach them what we needed. Yeah. Sorry. I was, <laughs> it just... 
Suicide is unique among losses, and friends and family usually do not have the life experience or the language of loss needed to comprehend the experience. Most do not know how to respond. <laughs> they simply don't. Um, while some may respond inappropriately, emotional support is very subjective. What feels supportive to one individual may not feel supportive to the next. We found the most effective way to get what we needed was to ask for it. Uh, and then I'll just read this other part. We will, we will always, I think it's from a different page, but we will always appreciate a close friend who sat with us shortly after Ellie's death and said, <laughs> I care for you so much, but I don't know what to say. I want to acknowledge your pain and be able to talk to you. How can I help? We answered, don't be afraid to talk about our loss and use Ellie's name whenever you are with us. The greatest comfort is in an accepting and compassionate presence, someone to nourish your soul. Yeah. The, the, the reason for that is parents want two things when they lose their son or daughter. They want someone to hear their pain and they want to make sure that their loss matters. So it's important that they have a compassionate <laughs> presence to stand in the fire with them. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult task for friends and family to do. So that's why we sought out individual therapy, group therapy, uh, family therapy, so our voice could be heard. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, um, and we love being with the friends who can um, yeah. keep Ellie's memory alive. Uh, yeah, and it's very, it's much more comfortable. Um, yeah, there's a lot of com in the book in those sections. There's a lot of compassion that you have for those who aren't capable of having that conversation or who may say the wrong things or whatever and that's quite lovely that you, Thank you. the writing yeah it's just part of that is understanding who can be on your playing field with you who's capable of standing with you and being that compassionate presence mm -hmm. and who needs to be in the bleachers until they're ready to come right. onto the playing field with yeah, you yeah that's a nice analogy yeah wow yeah and you'll notice we're open, right? Yeah, we're, it's lovely. It's important to talk. Mm -hmm. um, as part of it helps us, but right. it helps others. Right. And your reaction to the book, Mike, is really very mm -hmm. uh, touching my heart enormously. Um, we've been told by many that you know it's not a work of genius. We say it's really just our own story, yeah, yeah. and it's not a professional um, essay. It is really just sharing with others what helped us. Mm -hmm. But people mm -hmm. have remarked that mm -hmm. um, it's really touched them. And yeah. And identify yeah. with it. Um, and each time we speak, it strengthens us. Yeah. To keep the memory alive. Yeah. Um, four years ago, I, I um, took the training at the Toronto Distress Center um, where Deborah and I had spent eight sessions as a couple and then eight <laughs> sessions in... Um, group therapy took the training and um, I became a grief facilitator at the Toronto Distress Center yeah, just turn this back on. There 
go. <laughs> so I've been doing that just coming up to four years now. And as I mentioned, um, being with a family that had had a loss of a daughter or son to suicide uh, or homicide is very strengthening for me and um, helps me through my grief as well. Yeah. There's something so beautiful about the expression of these things. And I, I think, I mean, that is one thing that hopefully happens in therapy. But I think as a community or as people trying to, I guess, improve the outcomes in these scenarios, I do think there's a bit of a, um, I don't know what, uh, a, maybe a need for more honest expression. And you do such a lovely job in the in this, yeah. Thank you. We are hotwired for community, for connection. Yeah. And um, uh, it's important that um, we do connect and we don't isolate ourselves and um, ultimately to keep the memory alive. Yeah. We also made a decision that we were going to do what we could do to battle stigma. So even at the funeral, you know, there was nothing yeah. hiding. Um, yeah. We were very clear in our messages, and I think being open and discussing suicide and mental illness is our way of helping others do the same. And we do know, we read daily in the news of uh, issues. Yeah. and Really, it's a major public health problem. It is, yeah. Young yeah. young adults. And in 1970, there were over 400 Canadians in prison for attempting to take yeah, their my lives. God. Yeah. And then in 1971, the Canadian government changed the law and um, they took the word committed out. Uh, committed right. was more for murder or yeah. rape. So um, it's a bit of a misnomer now to say um, she or he uh, committed suicide. Yeah. Now we can say um, she or he uh, took their lives from suicide or by suicide. Right. Or died by suicide, or, or died, or yeah, just trying to change the language. Change the language. It's no soften. longer in the criminal code. Yeah, so it yeah. Be treated as a criminal. Language. Yeah, and that is still really deeply ingrained in people's mm -hmm. vocabulary. Oh, well, we all use it all the time. Yeah, it's Even interesting. I've heard mental health professionals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? It's, a, it's a habit, but so yeah, how so I'm. Has, um, yeah. Really tried to be proactive about helping people yeah. change that language. Uh, be aware. I've you. sent um, editorials to uh, newspapers, <laughs> which they published about that, just Lovely, to soften yeah. the language and uh, bring awareness. And I'm curious. Um, that's a big part of the 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 mental health education program that I'm involved with. That CAMH talks a lot about the language change and the yeah. the fact that the laws were were changed in the 70s. Um, how I think people struggle with how do you um, help change those conversations? You know, when somebody says says commit suicide or et cetera, I think we lack some skill or some practice maybe in having those conversations, just saying, you know, hey, because either people get angry or they don't say anything or, yeah. <laughs> I'll email them my article. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then I usually yeah. get an interesting, uh, oh, I didn't know. Thanks for, right. for the education. Nice. Yeah. You have to pick Love the it. moment. It yeah. Depends yeah. Out, yeah. Right. You know, right. what the conversation is about. But uh, right. when there is an opportunity, we will take it. <laughs> yeah, probably. Because I... Um, it's often just, oh, you know something? We have something interesting to share with you. You've just used the term commit suicide. Right. Can I share with you? Right. You know, That's da, nice. Da, 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 yeah. 
That's great. Yeah. Attacking. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and most people are happy to yeah. realize. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Somebody's had a loss, and someone um, comes to them and says, I, 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 I can't even imagine what you're going through. Um, uh, that's really, I don't know what to say. That's really the best thing they can say. Yeah. Because, uh, especially suicide, the, Deborah's coined a word uh, for this uh, particular instance. Uh, it's inexplicable. And, um, um, Hmm. That's one way people can um, have a dialogue. Right. Yeah. So the in the book, it says here, eventually we realized that a death by suicide is a result of factors too numerous to count. We thought we needed all the answers in order to cope with our new reality. But in truth, we learned the answers were not forthcoming. I mean, that's just so boom like right there and sincere and honest and real it just anyhow yeah a loss of a child is is um it's like a maze uh, a maze has an entrance and an exit um this particular maze the parents uh, are are witnessing uh, has an entrance but it has no exit until they realize there is no no what no answer right, to why right so then hopefully they move on to what now what can i do now right and I guess you talk a lot about how that path is just random and different for everyone. Right. And, right. Yeah. Whether it's a bench or a tree or releasing butterflies. Right. Um, it's all meaningful to keep their memory alive. Grief itself is, um, takes a learning curve. It's not something we're born with innate skills of how to mourn and how to grieve. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, for sure. <laughs> and many people, fortunately, don't have lot of experience yeah. with it, but it is a skill. Mm-hmm. I think, um, well, I really don't want to say we're lucky, we're not lucky, but we had losses in our lives um, um, that have taught us some of the skills, right. and um, I think that uh, it sort of helped us. And part of our message now, um, we, we speak frequently, mm-hmm. our message now is about hope and resilience. That's the message. That we can move through grief to be in that place. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, which is so uh, is evident from where you are and how you're how you're able to articulate this in the book and everything you're doing with Ellie's place. Do you think I'm curious? My sense is that we are too because it's uncomfortable and excruciating you know working through the darkness do you think that or maybe I'll say it as a statement and then maybe I think often we just sort of I don't want to say skim over the darkness but because it's so uncomfortable we expect or we just talk about the end or the you can get through this you can do this you can do that you can be resilient which are all true but we don't articulate the suffering and so then when people aren't in a place of resilience or they've gotten over whatever it is um maybe they're kind of wondering why the hell they're not feeling better or why they're not i don't know it it just and I, i just keep going back to it but 
you've done such a lovely job of articulating the struggle and the success and it's beautiful and i always am trying to find ways to help people articulate the struggle because that's how we learn from each other and it just doesn't seem to happen very often i don't know that's a little bit of a rant but yeah part of it is recognizing that it is hard right and the willingness to go through it I remember one of my favorite films of all time was A League of Your Own. And there's a scene where Tom Hanks um, is talking with Gina Davis, who's the best female ball player Mm -hmm. of the league. And he says, where are you going? She says, I'm quitting, I'm leaving. He says, why? She says, because it's hard. And Tom Hanks says, of course it's hard. If it were easy, everybody could do it. It's acknowledging that it is hard. Yeah. And the willingness to go through it. Yeah. And there's no timeline, right? right. Parents think after a year, oh, I should be over the f- worst of it. You know, right. Yeah. Through all the first milestones. And, well, we unfortunately learned that the second year wasn't any easier. Right. Um, we found that uh, suddenly it was r- real. And, uh, That's no. be- because of the shock it wore off. Yeah. Right, yeah, you it's talk about the numbness yeah. yes, the in numbness. the book. Yeah. The yeah. numbness and the shock wears off um, after a period of time. And right. the reality sets in that she's or he is not coming through that door. Right. Right. And that really, really hurts. Now, statistically, the second year is <sighs> than the first year because of that fact. Right. But for some parents, no, the, f- the, the second year does get, right. get uh, less worse. There's no one pattern. There's no yeah, one pattern. Yeah. For us, at 25 months, it started. We could. It was perceptible. We could. Right. It could feel a little bit less worse at, at about the 25th month. Yeah, amazing. But wow. it's tough. It's a long journey. Yeah. The hole's always there. You're always living with yeah, the loss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just learn to live with it. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's mentioned. I don't think I put a note, or maybe I did at the end, but. You write in the book, too, about that rather than it going away, it's you learn to build around it or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. You, something like that, I think. To, to live with it. Life. Yeah, right. It's right, not part right. of your life. It's and you learn to, I, similar to the recovery model, is, is yeah. a weird it's analogy, actually, but no, yeah. Good, yeah. Good yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, can we, um, another beautiful part of this was when you talk about uh, anger. Because that's another thing that mm-hmm. we um, often just sort of, not brush aside, but if we don't dig into it, it's hard for it to be released, I guess. Um, I want to read this because uh, it is lovely. Um, Anger is a natural reaction to the unfairness of our loss. Anger has no limits and can extend to family, friends, doctors, and yourself. For some, anger can extend to your child. God, in fact, at life itself. We learn that anger is an emotional connection from us to our child as we attempted to hold on and not let go. Anger is a normal part of grief, a bridge of energy across the river of loss. It is known that, in mourning, people experience anger in varying degrees of length and intensity. Anger tells us that we are alive and we love someone very much. We are angry because our child is dead. We found anger was actually progress. It allowed us to feel the profound emotions of grief needed in order to heal. 
Anger tends to come and go before it is finally resolved. Yes, anger can be resolved. Rather than being held in the grip of prolonged anger, you can choose to deal with this powerful emotion in order to eventually be released from its control. If you hold on to anger for an extended period of time, it can become a stumbling block in your recovery. Even though it is normal to feel anger, it is important to deal with it purposefully and with awareness. Resist feeding it with negative thoughts. Oh, lovely. That paragraph yeah. um, uh, came out of um, my work with the Toronto Distress Center. And um, we were all trained by the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Toronto Distress Center is the gold standard for North America. Amazing. Wow. And um, the anger sometimes isn't even anger. Right. Sometimes it's it's something else. Right. And that's why um, having a therapist can help people people deal with that. And sometimes guilt isn't guilt; it's regret. So that's why we we stress uh, if they can find somebody that that deals with um, with trauma, the, the loss, yeah, of a child. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. It mm-hmm. is trauma, you know. Yeah. It's, it's unnatural. It's just not supposed to be. It's, uh, and you add on that the reasons why suicide. Why couldn't I be? You know, why couldn't my child survive? And all the whys that yeah, are there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, anger is very much a part of the early grief process, mm-hmm. the ongoing grief process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. David and I turned to each other early on and said we didn't want to continue our lives as angry older people. We didn't want to age in an angry mode. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was like we choose... Remember when Deborah quit smoking in 1974? Yeah. She wore a little badge. I choose not to smoke. We chose <laughs> not to be age and grow angry and grow old, bitter. We made that distinction. I believe that the only thing we can control in our lives is our attitude. And we took the position that we're going to do everything in our power to go through this. And um, You talk a lot about not you have to go through and not around and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Or yeah. over. Right. But we're not superhuman. We grieve. Yeah. We, we cry. Still grieve. Yeah. You know, things mm-hmm. can make us angry, but yeah, right. Of course. <laughs> you, you deal with it. Sure. Right. You right. Know, what right. am I feeling? You yeah. Know, you deal with it, and and um, you know we have three basic instincts for security, satisfaction, and connection, and um, you know when we're feeling angry, which one of those isn't being met? Right. So what a important practice. Um, can I read another uh, one or two more parts here okay Uh, talking about your child your uh, your friends and family may believe that the last thing a bereaved parent would want to talk about is the death of their child the reverse is almost always true we needed to talk about the death of our son 
Grieving parents need to talk about their tragic loss, to express their sadness, to release their anger, to express their guilt, and have others understand and hear the crying of their soul. They need to confront the reality of what happened to them. Your loss is always right under the surface of other emotions, even moments of happiness. Others need to know that you would rather be moved to tears as they speak your child's name while remembering them than be shielded from the pain and live in denial. I think, I guess that was it, yeah. Mm. Holy moly. Yeah, it's it's just so real and yeah, anyhow. It's okay. easy to understand why friends would be afraid to bring up Ellie's name yeah. or yeah. memories. I mean, they don't they don't know if you're in the mm-hmm. space where mm-hmm. you want to deal with it or go back. Um, so that's part of the teaching your friends. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And how did I guess? How did you, the two of you, come to? I mean, I guess we've talked about it, but was that just sort of all the pieces just came when they came and these practices and ideas and commitments just... We were very lucky. Yeah. Um, um, Eight days after Ellie um, took his life from suicide, a friend um, asked to meet with us and he walked us around the block and he said, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that's going to help you uh, as you move through this grief process and it's a long and arduous journey but you must take it otherwise um, you will be very very unhappy you could end a marriage you could make you an alcoholic mm-hmm. or a drug addict yeah. I suggest to you that you need to tell your friends and family what it is you need, otherwise you'll lose them. So that's that we put right in. I think um, we had 26 lessons. Um, the School of Mourning, it's called. That's the, the School <laughs> right. of Mourning. And uh, that I think that was the first lesson. That's a pretty... Uh, was this person a close... That, that's a really... Uh, close friend. He had wow. lost a daughter by, by through an accident. Yeah, and but loss is loss. Yeah, ours just happens to be a, a very complex loss. Yeah, it's not like losing a mother or a father or a pet. Um, that's that's the natural order of things. This is a very very complex, and um, has to be dealt that way. As right, well. right. Yeah, that's. Was that solicited advice? Like, how does that? Because that's that's he so. To walk with us, yeah. Um, as a bereaved parent. And okay. At the time, right. He right. Was okay. Doing a lot of Got it. Work with Got it. Okay. Ontario, yeah. And, uh, so there was context advice. to it. Yes, sort of. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Right. 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 yeah. And, and that's what also you know um, people have asked us to sit with other yeah. parents yeah. who are going through this and. Which we do on a regular basis. Yeah, that's it's amazing. Very strengthening wow. for us to be yeah. with parents that have lost a child early on yeah. in the first days or weeks or even months um, before um, they move towards the, the counseling or the trauma yeah. distress center. Right. Is that through the distress center? How do they connect with you? Just friends of friends. friends. Yeah. And um, we give them uh, some um, of our uh, experience. Yeah. And it's not a applicable for everybody mm-hmm. and uh, they can glean uh, 
from what we what we say. Yeah. I think that's why we wrote the guide yeah, because we yeah. can't meet with <laughs> Yeah, right, right. There's too many parents. <laughs> yeah. There. Yeah. There are too many parents losing children from mm-hmm, suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't meet with them all, nor mm-hmm. can we answer all their questions or right. be their supports. Yeah. And every story is a different story, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but Sad, it's about though. it's about hearing their pain and 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 right. ensuring that they know that that um, that it's, at some point they have to go through it with with right. somebody that um, um, is a compassionate presence. Yeah, that's the a lovely word and and reality i guess or really yeah. and 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 how do we not be broken by the weight of it yeah and and my answer is we need to go through it yeah um here's an, another lovely thing in the book for friends or families um what to say i think i wrote as the note but sometimes the best way for friends and family to respond is simply to express their sympathy and be free to say that they do not know what to say. Statements such as, I'm so sorry, I didn't know what to say, but I want you to know that I too am sad and wish I could do more. Or, we are praying for you and thinking of you. Are just fine. They are truthful, honest, and direct. I know we've kind of talked about it, but that's a, I think a lot of friends and family in, in, in tragic situations don't know what to say, and simple is usually best or I don't know what to say and yeah encouraging people that that's okay to do that and you often say I think that it's better to say that right right and and there's a language of silence too to (coughs) sit with someone to sit in their pain to sit in the fire with them and just uh, be silent so (coughs) the, the the person knows Hmm. There is a compassionate presence. Right. Hmm. Uh, okay, the last quote from the book, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about Ellie's place and sort of maybe where we can tell people how to find out about it and all those kind of things. Okay. Uh, this was a quote, I think, from another parent. Moving Mountains, I wrote. Is that? Maybe that's what it says in there. Um I have had to join the club that I can never leave, that I cannot leave. But this club is full of the most shining souls I have ever known. The survivors of suicide I have met over the course of a decade have become instrumental in reshaping my new life. They are the life changers, the game changers, relentless warriors who redefine the word brave. Every day, survivors move mountains in honor of their loved ones who have gone too soon. They have started movements changed laws and spearheaded crusades of tireless activism they have learned to alchemize which is such a beautiful word they have learned to alchemize their grief into a force to be reckoned with they have turned tragedy into transformation and loss into legacy is it sandy rower sandy roar sandy roar sandy um um is a suicide loss survivor and um she works for the Toronto Distress Center, and uh, she gave a speech at the flag raising at City Hall, and that was how she ended the speech. Wow. And um, I asked her if I could quote her, because I was writing a book in the next couple of years, 
Um, she's mentioned in the book uh, three times. This is the this is the last this is one. How I think. we ended right. the, the book. This yeah, is, with her very poignant quote. And like you, I love the word alchemize. Mm-hmm. Alchemize their grief. Yeah, it's. We were so taken yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. So articulate. And she's a warrior. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And so, oh, just breathing in that. It's beautiful. Um, okay, so ha, here we are. Um, so, yeah, what I guess what's next in terms of bringing Ellie's place uh, to life? And I know you mentioned a little bit at the beginning, but, yeah, what sort of are you working on, I guess? Um, well, we yeah. put together a capital campaign cabinet, and um, we're going to be doing some fundraising mm-hmm. um, starting probably June or July. To raise the funds, uh, we're, we're, we're hopefully we're going to be given the land yeah. and the acreage to do the organic farming. That's uh, pretty well in the works, um, but we need to build three residents and the main lodge where there'll be the offices and the music and art therapy and right. and the um, the uh, counseling rooms, counseling rooms right, and right. whatnot. So we're going to be doing um, the fundraising for that and. Um, we have a lot ahead of us. Yeah, no, good. Is, major capital campaign. Is it um, – I'm curious. I don't, I don't know if the provincial health care system restructuring is it will impact any of this, but uh, is, there, is it possible to get funded from the health care system? Like how does that well, work? We'll yeah. be private the first uh, – probably the first year. And, uh-huh. um, uh, once we show outcome – Yeah. Um, we'll be going to the um, Ontario provincial government for, for right. funding. Okay, and th- is that how it has to work? That's usually how it works. Yeah. Although we, we, um, you know, there's uh, there's a possibility that yeah. there could be funds earlier. Cool. Yeah. Which would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, we have an amazing board of directors and volunteers and so much experience in the mental health care system. Yeah. And um, we have a wonderful executive director. Uh, Alice Katzoff is his name, and he's also had a career in mental health. And uh, uh, there's just so much talent uh, working with us yeah. that uh, we're very optimistic, and um, we uh, we know that we, we will be successful. Yeah. We hope very soon to find uh, we have to find major philanthropists yeah, who yeah. who can appreciate what we're doing and be willing to. Um, put funds behind the first in Canada. Um, yeah. It's a big leap, but we, uh, as David said, we're not reinventing the wheel. We, right, right. we know this works. This works all over the world, and Canada should have. And, and, and it's, a, bit of, and it's yeah. been a seven-year process, and it's not <laughs> wow. a 100-yard dash. It's, it's been a marathon. Yeah. We're, we're getting near the finish line now. Um, uh, we hope to announce our, our partner uh, in the next um 45 days let's say yeah and um and uh, uh build ellie's place and start saving lives and yeah. bring hope where no hope was possible before yeah it's so lovely um i th- in i have, i guess i have a quite like an advocate advocacy question and this is for myself too but i think lots of people how you go from your own situation to bringing others into it and finding the expertise and finding uh, it's such a a difficult step or uh, for me it's a difficult step um 
Yeah, uh, how did that happen, or what was people, your plan behind that? I yeah. understood that people follow visions yeah. and ideas, and it's like a vacuum. They're drawn into a vision and idea, and if they believe in it, they will follow you and be loyal. And right. we've been so lucky to have wonderful board of directors, wonderful volunteers yeah. that have believed in our vision from hope from hopeful futures. Yeah, and so from did you? From men, sorry, from mental right. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And how did you, so? Did you? You sort of said, okay, we need a board. Like, we need a board of directors, or we? How did that process go? Because it's really fascinating. Well, we really I think, started yeah. By, by gathering around us people we knew, yeah, who um, most of them knew Ellie, or they had um, really a lot of expertise. Mm-hmm. And pardon me. Sorry. And, oh, no, um, we're okay. We can go over a little bit. Yeah, okay. that's okay. And I'm going to start <coughs> So we, um, okay, we right, sat yeah. down at a table and we yeah. talked about what can be done. Mm-hmm. And, and when we learned about these places in the U.S. and yeah. we were visiting them, we okay. wanted to share this with these people. Uh, um, and right. people got really caught on to the uh, idea. And yeah. in fact... I guess a lot of our early work was uh, we did a literature review. We did a lot of yeah, research. Wow. We identified gaps that do exist that we would love to fill. And uh, did you do the lit, like you, the two of you did the literature no, review? We and a professional. Wow! Wow! So we started That's amazing. With a task force. Yeah. And then as we were growing, yeah. we knew we um, wanted to be a little more formal in yeah. building this. We developed a governance yeah. case for support board of wow. directors. Okay. We were received our charitable status which meant we right. could do fundraising uh, and it's really grown and um, amazing yeah. yeah cool it is it's been I guess predominantly it has been eight years of a lot of networking a lot of networking. yeah wow and we, and we have now have a social media yeah <laughs> I don't know anything about social media um, so we uh, we, she's great. Yeah. Uh, we'll also be trying to reach out to a wider demographic. Right. Through, right. Amazing. Through, wow. We do have a Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Page. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Um, you know, we have a website, so yeah, anybody yeah, wants yeah. to learn more about what we're doing can certainly go on to elliesplace.org. Yeah. Um, and there's even an opportunity to donate on that page, Amazing. which yeah. uh, Excellent. Is, is very much needed and appreciated. And our books on Amazon, Bridge Over the River Y by David and Deborah Cooper. Um, the um, It's also at Friesen Press out of Vancouver Mm -hmm. and in Toronto at Caversham Booksellers on Harvard Street. Ah, cool. I've heard about that story. Yeah, lovely. Yes. Amazing. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. Likewise. And it's lovely. It's so I don't know. I'm always I because I spent years and continue to uh, sitting in rooms with other people who share similar issues to myself hearing there's just nothing more moving and beautiful but for about he- hearing other people speak from that place of vulnerability and mm-hmm. sincerity and, mm-hmm. and strength, mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. Um, and resilience. And you are doing a lovely job of that. So thank you so thank much. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the, mm-hmm. the opportunity. Okay. We honor your work. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. So we got to turn the sound back on here. And then we'll say goodbye. So thanks, everybody. Um, oh, you did say you had a, wa- a website. So what is it? It's elliesplace.com or dot c. Elliesplace.org. Elliesplace.org. Right. E L I S P 
P-L-A-C-E dot org. Okay, wicked. Okay, take care, everyone. And we'll see you later. Bye.